Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Welcome to the Mind of the Early Church podcast. Today we have a special guest uh, with us, Andrew Kern, who uh, we'll introduce a little bit later. But the topic for today's episode is education in the mind of the early church. Now, let's start off with thinking about it. Why do we need an education? Easy, to get a good job, to make a lot of money, and to live comfortably, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from everyone growing up. I even heard it eloquently put by a six-year-old even a few years ago. Nobody ever challenged that way of thinking. Even those students you could tell weren't motivated to go to school. Needless to say, this has become a broken record. A lot of people like to object to this way of thinking by bringing up the examples of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And they point out how they dropped out of college. But I point out to people, especially my students, that these two men had an education. And they dropped out not because they didn't need an education, but because they were way beyond what the system could offer them. Indeed, all universities furthered their missions by using the technology that these two men developed. But these are two people from seven and a half billion others. So we can't set these people as an expectation. They cannot be the expectation that we have for ourselves. On a much more realizable level, a lot of people challenge the idea that education's there to make money or a comfortable life or to have a good job by pointing out that many small business owners make as much or much more money than college graduates. My own students bring that up to me regularly. I first seriously got that objection during my third year of teaching and regularly ever since, and I'm glad I did because it challenged me to consider why people sought education in the first place. In the ancient world, when schools first arose, people did not necessarily seek education to make money. If they could afford it, they were already rich. Most landowners did not need to worry for the rest of their lives about making money because they had land. But at the same time, these were the people being educated. So that raised the question with me, why do people get educated? Now, before we start, because of course, this is a podcast about the mind of the early church, there is a foundation that we need to understand before we can get into the idea of what education meant to the early Christians. And that's the idea of the image of God within us. So man was created in the image of God, God being triune God, immaterial, and specifically the Logos. We're created in the image of the Logos, who's the light and fountain of all knowledge, and that Logos is reflected in our minds. The church fathers called the Logos in our minds the seminal Logos. Seminal coming from the Latin word seminales, which means seed. Like a seed, the Logos that is within our minds develops over time, and specifically by a contemplation of the universe and by letting it develop over time in that contemplation. 
the Logos, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, was called the perfect Logos because he's complete. There's no need for development. So the idea of learning in the church fathers has to be understood against this background, that it is in our nature to know. It is our, in our nature to contemplate and to grow in our understanding. So like I said, with me today is Andrew Kern. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself, and he's going to talk about the education system in the ancient world, and then we're going to have a conversation about how the church fathers were educated by that system and how they used it and how that developed and how we can integrate that today in our spirituality. Well, thank you. What an honor to be here, and I, I feel like um, the whole that you've set such a banquet in, the, in your comments that I, I just have some dessert or something. That was really helpful, really insightful. My name is Andrew Kern, and I'm with the Searcy Institute. And Searcy stands for Center for Independent Research on Classical Education. And it also stands for Consulting and Integrated Resources for Classical Educators. And the reason for that is because way back in the day, when my oldest, who's now 34, and father of four of my grandchildren. When he was about five, my wife and I were trying to decide what are we gonna do to educate our children? And in the course of, of, our, of our research, we, we stumbled into or dug up or whatever it was, a vision for classical education that I found to be breathtaking. I found to be, um, well, I'll just leave it at that, it was breathtaking. And so I started a school and shortly thereafter, I thought, what have I done? And I, I started um, to ask myself the question, what is classical education? And for 30 some years now, that's been the, well, for almost 30 years now, that's been, that's been my vocation. That's been my calling, my career, my life is figuring out what is classical education. And then specifically, I'm a Christian. So why does a Christian want to bother with this? And then next, what's it have to do with today? And what's so I think I think you have the three stages right there of your next part of your question, which is the ancient world, right? And then the interaction with Christianity, and then well, well then what are we gonna do with it? And so briefly speaking, if we look at the ancient world, I think we have to understand that what was different among the Greeks in particular, the Greeks and Hebrews, so far as I know, were the only people who were like this. There were some distinct qualities about the way they thought about the world. And I would suggest to you three, three distinct qualities. The distinct quality number one is when a Greek, at least a Greek philosopher, I mean, the Greeks were pagans, but let's just talk about the philosophers and the educated. When they looked at the stars in the sky, the amazing thing about it, what they saw was stars in the sky. When, when they looked at a river flowing by, okay, what, what they saw was a river flowing by. Whereas if you lived in Egypt and you saw the Nile River, you didn't see the Nile River. You saw a god. Right? And, if, and if a hippopotamus rose up out of the Nile, you didn't see a hippopotamus, you saw a god. And so what happens is in Egypt, somebody comes along around 3000 BC, uses geometry and figures out how to regulate the Nile enough that now they can turn this source of life and death into a more regular source of life. 
And what does he do? He builds a priesthood around him and makes geometry secret knowledge and becomes the most powerful man in the world. Much later, Thales, TH, according to the legend, Thales does some mathematical calculations, just like the Pharaoh did, does some mathematical calculations of the movements of the stars, and he figures out mathematically, he figures out on this day, there's going to be an eclipse. You know what he does? He told people there's going to be an eclipse on this day. There was an eclipse on the day. And then he does one of the single most amazing things that any human being has ever done in the history of the world. He says, yeah, I know. Let me show you how you can calculate that too. And he shows them mathematically how they also could predict an eclipse. He could have become a god. He could have become, he could have been dressed in purple and eaten anything he wanted for the rest of his life by, by claiming this was some secret knowledge. Instead, he says, I can show you how to calculate that too. That's why math, that's why the, the art of astronomy mathematically considered is what's called a liberal art. It is an art that sets you free. And the Greeks, therefore, following on Thales, believed something that as far as I've been able to determine, only one other people in the ancient world believed. What they believed was the world is real. What you see, that's what it is, right? The physical thing. The only other people who believed that so far as I can tell were the Hebrews because God told Moses, I am. And the I am that he was telling him he was, was the one that his mother had told him about who created the world from language, from words in Genesis chapter one. So it's a real world. So that's the first thing. The second thing about the Greeks that I think followed from that, and it's astounding, is that they believe not only that the world is real, but they believe that, here, I'm gonna put it this way. They believed it's knowable. Now, another way of putting it is to, draw, to, to take the word that you use so beautifully, and that is the logos or the logos. They believed that there was a principle that everything depended on, that gave birth to everything, that it's in our language, it's in our mind, it's also in the world outside of us. And because that logos is within us and outside of us, it is the medium, the mediator, the means by which we can know both ourselves and the world outside. And by the way, we can know each other and we can communicate using language. They believed in a logos. And that means that they believed that the world made sense to them. Now, once you believe that the world makes sense, you're not saying, I know how it makes sense. You're not saying, I know how everything fits together. Instead, you start asking, well, then how does everything fit together? That gave us science. It gave us philosophy. It gave us, um, it, it gave us room for, for Christ when Christ came as the Logos. It gave, it gave us the Greek miracle, frankly. And, and so... When we look at the ancient world, I don't know if I would say that it's so much that there was a system in place, although the Romans definitely were a systematic people and put one together. But among the Greeks, it was two things primarily. It was that they believed the world was real and knowable and that they believed there was a logos and that the, the goal of thought was to know that logos. The third thing, very briefly, that follows from that is a negative. Whereas we in the modern world are obsessed with method and technique and power over things and control, they didn't believe in a method. Methods to them 
Well, again, I'm talking about a select few. But methods to them were something that you used in order to overpower something else, to gain control of something else. They had techne, but that meant art. And so what they were always looking for was the arts that made you free and gave you knowledge. They were opposed to now, let's just say technique. So the, the idea, for example, of a standardized test, they would, have saw, they would have thought that we were out of our minds, that there, there, is, there, is, there is no possibility that a free people would ever allow themselves to do that to themselves. That, I'm sure that Socrates would have almost put it in those words out of exasperation. They, they would just not have conceived that we would do such a thing. So for them, knowledge was a contemplation. It wasn't, it wasn't memorable. I'm sorry, it wasn't measurable. It was by nature not measurable. So how could you put it on a standardized test? It was contemplative. It was more of a way, right? Our Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, you read in, in, in ancient Greek thought, in ancient Chinese thought even, in, in most ancient wisdom thought, they talk about a way, a Tao, right? That's how they were thinking, was that you're going to go on a journey, and their model for that, frankly, was the Odyssey. So I would put it that way, that the three things they had, again, then, where they believed the world was real, they believed there was a logos or a principle that made sense of it, and therefore it could be known, and they, they believed that, that life, that thought, thinking, is a contemplative journey, both within and without yourself, inside you and in relation to the world. This, this developed into, to be a little more specific to your question, this developed into a set of, of uh, we can call them tools or maybe toolboxes. Aristotle called them the organon, Greek word organon. We get organ from that musical instrument. But an, an organ or an organon is a way, uh, a, a means by which you can make something. And so the organon in Aristotle is, is what we might call the, the, uh, the basic foundations of learning. Master these and then you can go on to the subjects. So now they have not only a real world with a logos and no method but a contemplative approach, they also have tools that can be disciplined, arts, that's the best word for it. They have arts of, of learning, arts of gaining knowledge that anybody can learn, like Thales teaching you how to calculate the eclipse. And those, those are linguistic arts and mathematical arts. By the time we get to the Romans, they've developed that into basically, I don't wanna to be too simple, but basically seven of them, sometimes nine, and we think of them, but in the fifth century, a Christian father, Bethius, called them the trivium and the quadrivium, three and four, three and four arts. Um, but that came much later. They were kind of a sloppy, to some extent, sloppy approach to it from the time the, the uh, Romans and Greeks interacted until, until the Christian era. And then, and then in the Western Christian era, those seven liberal arts, as they became known, dominated the Western universities until well into the 14th, 15th century, really through the Renaissance, I would say. In yes. fact, I would argue, I would be prepared to argue that when we talk about the Renaissance man, that Renaissance man or woman is a person who has mastered the seven arts. There is something there in the core that enables them to easily move across all the different arts and, and you know, fine arts and servile arts even and all the different elements of life and they can do it easily because they've mastered the seven liberal arts. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the trunk of the tree of learning, if you like. So they have a coherence and a simplicity that flows through that whole time period. That's pretty magnificent to look at. 
Yes, yes. And um, that you mentioned that it's, you call them liberal arts. And I think for my listeners, they, they hear mm-hmm. liberal arts. Oh, it's a variety of subjects. But you, you yeah. touched upon that it's liberal as in the arts of a free person. Right. Could you expand more on that? Yeah, sure, sure. I, would, I, I believe that the liberal arts uh, were taught for three reasons, that they, they accomplished three basic things for the, for the learner. The, the first thing they do is each, each of the liberal arts is an art of truth perception, right? It's not just this general knowledge. It's cultivating a God-given faculty by which we can know truth, okay? The second thing is every liberal art is an art that enables a certain kind of harmony to resolve a certain kind of discord. And then, the, so, so there are arts of harmony it, from, from the mind to community to the world we live in. The third thing though is specifically because they are arts of truth perception, as our Lord expressed it, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Okay, liberal comes from the word for free originally. And, and these are arts that when you, master them to the extent that you can, you are now a free person. You are capable of seeing truths that prevent you from error. And I think the example of Thales and astronomy is a really good example. The Greeks became a free people, not because of fighting battles, but because of studying astronomy mathematically. And I think another example would be arithmetic. If I, if I am convinced that four plus three equals eight, and when it comes time for my next lesson, I'm going to I'm going to be a free person. I'm going to insist that four plus three equals eight. Okay, I'm free. I decided I'm free to do that, but I'm not free ever to do any math beyond that. I'm absolutely a slave to my error. But the instant I admit that four plus three equals seven, in, in, in that particular domain of existence, I just became a free person. I know the truth that it's four plus three is seven, and that truth makes me free. Now I can do stuff with a seven that I simply could not have done otherwise. I can do things with four and three. It opens whole worlds to me. The same is true in language. If I don't know grammar, my mind is limited. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily, mean, well, I do to some extent, but I'm not primarily emphasizing here the ability to you know, write perfect long form sentences and, and the structure of language. Grammar for them meant the idea of interpreting signs. But if I can't interpret signs accurately, if I don't know what something means, obvious example would be if I go to Greece and don't know the Greek alphabet and I read a sign, I'm not free. <laughs> I don't know which road to take, right? I'm bound by my error. And in this sense, learning how to read, learning how to write, learning how to think logically, learning how to communicate with other people, these enable us to be free people, not absolutely free, but free in the sense of governing ourselves instead of other people governing us and free in the sense of maintaining a community that can govern itself and not have other people governing it, right? And so these arts, if you don't teach these arts, the mathematical and the verbal, if you don't teach these arts, you won't have a free society. It is literally not possible. And yeah, and to add to that, even with this today with language arts, you know, reading and writing, I get a lot of students, I teach intervention level students and they struggle with reading. And I can see the result that it has when they grow up because a lot of their parents come in and they also struggle with reading and they're not able to read their, their uh, rent notices that they're raising rents. And if you don't pay by a certain day, you'll be evicted and they end up being evicted. 
And yeah. that limits their freedom. They don't have the freedom to do so many things. Like I think of myself and my first grade teacher, she taught very well in reading. And I know that retrospectively now that I teach reading myself, yeah. but yeah. because of what she taught me, I can pick up a book and read on whatever subject I want. And I can use the critical skills that later teachers taught me to be able to get into those subjects, whether it's yeah. philosophy, which I absolutely love, or theology, or even a novel that challenges the way you look at the world. And you gave a, a very good image of a journey, that when we have these arts, we're able to journey we're able to go where we want. And it's definitely true that when we don't have those, and I think of reading specifically, we're not able to go anywhere. <laughs> we're, we're just stuck in the cycles of, of the natural world and our, our ability to reason is limited because we don't know how to effectively channel that reason into expression in the case of writing or, yeah. or understanding in the case of reading. And you see that again in this idea that I brought up before about method or technique, how we're obsessed with method and, and we want things to be precise and certain, which is what I mean by method, basically a repetitive task that brings a predictable outcome, right? And we think we can get that in our schools. But what we do instead is we, we make people dependent on methods. Methods don't set you free. They make you have to repeat the exact same method over and over again. They don't align with reality. They don't align with nature. They overpower it like a tractor. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not dancing with the world they live in, they're overpowering it. And so, so that the, classical, the classical educators, as we think of them, would not have, would not have tolerated um, reducing reality to something precise and certain. In fact, now that I think about it, you said you like philosophy. You remember in The Republic, book one, Thrasymachus? And, and he says, he, he creates a standard for, for Socrates that he says, unless you can say that it's this, then it's not knowledge, it's, it can't be true. And do you remember what his standards were? Because it fascinated me. I can't remember off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, it's not a fair question to put you on the spot like that because it's <laughs> obscure. But yeah. I, as I recall, it was that, that whatever you say, Socrates, unless it's precise and certain, it's not knowledge. Okay. You know who, made, who became famous for the same pair? <laughs> René Descartes. Yeah. Right. So Rene Descartes is going back to the first book of the Republic, which gets eaten alive by Socrates. Um, Thrasymachus is the only person in philosophy in any philosophical text that I'm aware of who actually blushes on the page because he's so badly wrong. And here we are, 400 years of trying hard to do Thrasymachian education, however you would say it, right, uh, under the name of Rene Descartes. Yeah. And that whole notion of, of this, this, this um, reducing it to a, a, a nonsensical method instead of going through the hard journey of setting a person free. It's hard. And there's Scylla and there's Charybdis and there's Sirens and there's Cyclops. And if they don't know that, you're not preparing them for life. Yeah, and, and it's interesting how Thrasymachus is the sophist in that debate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and like you point out, Descartes is following the sophist uh, against all reason because mm -hmm. Plato develops a very beautiful argument in that book, and it's an odyssey in itself, that book. Mm -hmm. And it transforms the way that we look at the world with every passing page. Yeah. And I, I tell people all the time, and I'm proud to talk about my, my weakness here, <laughs> if I may, but... 
the Republic, even though it's not written in a complex way, it's definitely the most challenging book I've ever read. Oh, yes. Um, and, and it's because it's not... The John, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not because it's, it's, it's the concepts. It's just it transforms the way you see everything with every passing page. And that, that, that there is knowledge. Like when you point out when we reduce things to method and, you know, we're, we're results-driven, I find that to be so limiting. It limits just to that one result. Whereas, like, for example, we teach kids how to write essays, which no doubt is a very important skill. But because we focus so much on that, they can't think creatively and write in more ways and, and be freer in their expression. Which is so interesting, too, because one of the liberal arts is rhetoric. And what they didn't do in the ancient world is teach kids how to write the five-page essay, five-paragraph essay, and say, there, now you know how to do it. And of course, that drives college professors crazy. But when they thought about, it was more oriented towards speech. But you know, if 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 you think about writing as, the, let's just say the first three canons of rhetoric of coming up with something to say, sorting your ideas, and then expressing them appropriately, and then you can put them on paper. Okay, if you're going to speak, you need to rem you need to then memorize them and and use your body correctly, you know, appropriately. But if you're writing, you need to come up with something to say, sort what you've come up with, and express it. Well, that's what they taught kids how to do. But what's crucial in that, note this is rhetoric for them. What's crucial in that, the dominant element of it for Aristotle and for most of the educators was what they called invention, which included logic, which included reasoning, which included inquiry. It's very creative, right? Th this notion of creative writing versus the essay. Again, that would just, why would you do that, they would say. Why would you, why would you separate an essay from creativity. This is crazy. Now, what they did have is poetics. Poetics is, is the idea of narrative, right? It's of making a world versus rhetoric, which is persuasion. I, 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 it's, not, it's not limited, but it's, it's a persuasive address most of the time. But, well, it's really public speaking. But in any case, the point is one of them is storytelling and the other is more, let's say, analytical. But they would have never thought this one's not creative. Well, let's call this one creative writing. They would have never considered that. But that, I, I'll show you something. Um, I just, I, I picked up the book just this last week by which um, classical education of the Renaissance was executed. Th this is it. If anybody wants to watch education die at their feet, it's William Ames and the book is called Technometry. And this is a book that was written in 1688, uh, 16, 1633, 1630. I don't want to state this. I haven't read it in detail yet, but I know the historical flow. So I don't want to overstate this, but that book is where you see, where you see an, encapsulated in method and in theory, all of the wrong ideas that end up flourishing into, into the modern mind and all the creativity and the journey and everything else that we're talking about is is eliminated by that book i shouldn't have even mentioned it though because because i i just got it i've read about it i haven't read it very much yet i've read the first three paragraphs which are which are dangerous but um um it also most of all made me forget what made me think of it <laughs> i think we were on the topic of um education um it's about freedom and it leads to a way to journey and the idea that method is so limiting 
because it does not allow you to have the freedom to do so many other things. Like when we teach kids to write just by a five paragraph essay, which is, which, which is important. So, um, you remember your train of thought? I believe, I believe I do because, because the five, okay. So, so rhetoric in the ancient world, as I said, is very creative and brings in all these other, it's mostly the thought that goes into it before you present your talk. Right. That's just almost an afterthought. Not really, but it's almost an afterthought. But William Ames follows Peter Ramus, who in the 16th century takes that portion of rhetoric and separates it. And he says rhetoric is just the act of ornamenting your writing. Okay. And that renders rhetoric ornamental. Right. And the rhetoric that we now think of today is either propaganda or ornamentation, neither of which has anything like the beauty and elegance and importance and power of classical rhetoric. And that's what troubles me about about how fragmented we've become in the way we think. We've lost the liberal arts. When we think of the liberal arts, we make two mistakes. One is we mean something different from the liberal arts when we use the term. And then we think of what makes up the liberal arts if I talk about arithmetic or geometry, or if I talk about rhetoric or logic, I don't mean the same thing they meant. And so in all these ways, we've either fragmented and or diminished. We've done both. We've fragmented the the mind of the student through the fragmented curriculum, and we've diminished the power of each of the arts. And so then if we try to put it back together, even if we do, each of the arts is so weak that we don't see what the big deal is. You have to go back. Right? You have to go back and look at what they did. And it's astonishing what they did. Yeah, the that's idea that we're smarter than people in the ancient world is just crazy. Read Aristotle and tell me you're smarter than that. Oh, yeah. And I, I tell my own students, uh, as far as they can follow, that the most intelligent man who ever lived is Aristotle because he systematized all this stuff. But I mean, of course, not in the way that we mean system. But like he was able to draw out so much by contemplating on the nature of the world and, and, and pretty much everything that we understand as a discipline today originates with him. Maybe, maybe with the exception of chemistry, but I don't know about that. <laughs> um, maybe even the seeds are in there. But All the seeds are there, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I, I like the fact that you point out everything's fragmented. It's been divided into grains, and I, I hope by the end of our conversation, um, and this definitely is the goal, how the church fathers, as, as part of their faith, the whole idea was integrating everything. Um, yes. And I'd like to share something from St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. Um, he, mm. he gave an oration on Origen, the scholar. Origen, of course, um, the most, um, maybe the largest mind that Christianity has ever dealt with. And for that reason, of course, comes with controversy. But St. Gregory, among his so many disciples, I gave an oration. And he talked about how Origen taught them uh, spirituality. And what's interesting is he did not tell them, here you go, read the Bible. He told them, no, we're going to study the other writers, of course, under guidance. And St. Gregory makes that very clear. They weren't just dropped um, volumes of the philosophers on their tables. And he says, come talk to me next week as a good um, upper uh, class um, in college would do. Here you go, read the books, come back and we'll discuss where there is no teaching going on. No, he will guide them through the process and he will present 
all these different ideas so they wouldn't get confused about, oh, I like this idea, I'm gonna believe it. No, here's the challenge to it. And then as they went along that, he teaches them the faith. Then he teaches them the arts. He talks about um, um, mathematics, geometry specifically. He talks about astronomy. But then this is what St. Gregory says. Um, it's in... Argument 6. The book's divided into what they call arguments, but it's not arguments by what we mean today. For those of you listening, um, it's really just uh, he's retracing his journey with Origen, who he studied under for eight years. And he says, after all this education and these other sciences, it was like some spark lighting upon our inmost soul. Love was kindled and burst into flame within us. A love at once to the holy logos, the most lovely object of all, who attracts all irresistibly toward himself by his unutterable beauty. And to this man, Origen, his friend and advocate, and uh, being most mightily smitten by his love, I was persuaded to give up all those objects or pursuits, which in this case was the study of law, which seems to us befitting, and among others, even my boasted jurisprudence. Yet my very fatherland and friends, both those who were present with me then and those from whom I have parted. And in my estimation, there arose but one object, dear and worth desire, to wit, philosophy, and that master of philosophy, this inspired man. And he says, for the soul is free and cannot be coerced by any means, not even though one should confine it and keep guard over it in some secret prison house. And by what he means by that is the beauty. Origen showed him the beauty of everything because it all participates in the word of God, the Logos. And for that reason, they became objects worthy of study themselves. And from that point on, he teaches him and his brother logic philosophy then they get into the scriptures and then for him they can understand the scriptures because they've had training in the other subjects which necessarily factor when we read the bible you know if we don't know what war is like and we read about war in and in, in the books of the bible well, we, we get lost if we don't understand what the culture of uh, sanctity is what what holiness is and how we approach it with reference because that's so far off in our minds today in the west we don't understand why certain people were so afraid to approach temples or they, they quieted down when they came near. So philosophy teaches you about the nature of the world, nature of humanity, and it makes easy for us to understand the Bible because the Bible shows people who are participating in that human nature. So it's, it's very interesting. It's beautiful because it makes the whole world as something that, that is a reflection of the Logos. And it makes it worthy of study itself. And Gregory so beautifully puts that um, into words. He does. And what struck just before you started reading, I was I was thinking to myself and wrote down these words. Um, imagine the ecstasy that the ancient Christians must have felt when they discovered who the Logos was, right? Because the Greeks remember they believed in a Logos but they didn't know what it was. That was their quest, just as for us, the singularity, right? Among phys physicists. Well, yeah. they didn't know what it was. But when Christ came, and then John said in the beginning was the Logos, and it was revealed to be the case that he rose from the dead, that he did create a church, that he did create a new life, the ecstasy is right there in the words that you just read. Um, a spark, um, 
well, first of all, love, right? And, and spark lighting in the inmost soul. Have you ever felt a spark light your inmost soul? Oh, I yeah. Mean, right? <laughs> I mean, most of the time, if you do it in the modern world, it happens when you see a beautiful girl or, or if, you know, a beautiful man. But the spark lighting in the, in the inmost soul, that's, that's an unusual thing apart from the sensor, sensual. But he, they, were able, they were able to experience it in, a, in a, at least an intellectual, but really a spiritual way, because they believed that it was possible. They believed that such a thing was there. And so that, that ecstasy that the gospel brought to those first few centuries, those thinkers, is something that we, we can experience. But I think we, we're reluctant to because we're such, 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 such cynics. But for them, it was, it was, well, put it this way, for them, it was so new. There had not been an enlightenment to, to raise suspicion about everything. I, I, I call it the, <laughs> the endarkenment, <laughs> not enlightenment. Yeah, exactly. There, there hadn't been such a, an narrowment or, you know, whatever. Yeah, such a shrinking of the mind. Um, but, they, but for them, they had, they had been trained since childhood to have large souls. And then when those large souls encountered God, there was a lot of room. For God to move around it, which reminds me of the phrase by St. Augustine when he says, is it confessions or city of God? But he says, narrow is the mansion of my soul, enlarge thou it that thou mayest dwell therein. Well, if Augustine had a narrow soul, <laughs> what about us, right? Yeah. And we need to be praying that. And, and by the let me just quickly say that if there's parents or teachers listening, I assume that's probably primarily, that needs to be our prayer as we teach our children is not lord help me get my kids ready for a good job but lord help me to enlarge the mansion of my child's soul so that when you come to him he can take more of you in i mean the, the analogy breaks down of course but you get you get the point that that if we just have small minds then when an infinite god enters those small minds he's got a lot of work to do and that's going to be the case anyway Right? No matter how, how much we enlarge them, it's still going to be small compared to the infinite God. But we don't have to, you know, we want to give him as much room as possible in, in, in the soul. Anyway, sorry, that's... Yeah, and, and, and that, that touches upon the integration. I, and he also will enlarge our soul. Um, I find that, um, you know, I, I, I recently picked up astronomy. I say recently, but it's been like three years. Um, and a friend of mine will go out into his backyard at night and, and with his kids and we'd look at the stars and uh, get the telescope. And uh, one time we saw the moons of Jupiter and it was like, we didn't know it at the time, but they were at their closest approach to the earth. <laughs> so we saw a lot of detail. And at that point, it's not about anything other than beholding that beauty. And, and you know, you see the colors and you see the movement and you realize how small we are and how big this is. And it doesn't make you feel insignificant. It just makes you feel you're, you're part of something so grand. And, and, but we see that little star, that planet, it moves so quickly against that, um, that viewfinder because it's, we're so far away and the earth is moving and uh, we can only set it on that viewfinder for a minute, then we have to readjust. But it's, Education was also this idea of like, we look at, we, we revision things, we, we reimagine, not reimagine, but like to, when we learn and we view the same thing after we've learned something about it, it changes the way that we experience that thing. And I call it revisioning. Um, 
Um, there's also, um, we can call it wonder. A lot of people call it wonder, but wonder gets like a bad rap these days. Like people think when you wonder, you wonder because you're ignorant. And once you learn the whole thing, then, you know, you lose the wonder. But I've never felt that. I've never known how to put it in words. Um, I found St. Gregory, the wonder worker, again, he actually points out there's a, a rational way to wonder and an irrational way. And that puts it better than anything I could have put it. Um, in, in argument eight in his oration to Origen, he says Origen also took in hand that humble capacity of mind, what, what you're calling narrow, which shows itself in our amazement at the magnitude and the wondrousness and the magnificent and absolutely wise construction of the world, and in our marveling in a reasonless way, and in our being overpowered with fear, and in our knowing not, like the irrational creatures, what conclusion it come to. But then here he talks about how it changes the way they perceive things. He says, that too he aroused and corrected by other studies in natural science, illustrating and distinguishing the various divisions of created objects and with admirable clearness reducing them to their pristine elements, taking them all up perspicuously in his discourse and going over the nature of the whole and of each several section and discussing the multiform revolution and mutation of things in the world until he carried us fully along with him under his clear teaching. And by those reasonings, which he had partly learned from others and partly found out for himself, he filled our minds with a rational instead of an irrational wonder at the sacred economy of the universe and irreprovable constitution of all things. And that, that leads to the transformation of viewing that comes as part of our Christian faith. Um, and of course, that we know that the logos is behind this. It teaches us something more about who Christ is. Versus as, oh, here's Christ, here's the world that I want to escape from and, and everything will be good. No, it becomes everything is, is, is sacred in some way, but not because of what it is, but because of who it points to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What manifests, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's, I feel like, that's the type of education that the church fathers went through. And I got a lot more I can say, <laughs> um, but it's maybe that's something we should focus on, the revisioning. I mean, um, I listened to your talk and I recommend it for anyone listening. I think his talk's called A Contemplation on Nature. You can find it at the Searcy Institute. And he talks about nothing in American education leads to a renewed mind. I believe you said that in there. And what these church fathers are experiencing, what the philosophers, even to a smaller degree before them experienced, was a renewing of the mind. It was a, a broadening. It was a, a you, you contemplate things because you see this beauty that's transcendent. And, and, you know, the philosophers struggled with that. Some of them saw it as pointing to this higher reality, but they couldn't quite put their finger on what that was. Um, in the Republic, um, there's the allegory of the cave. And they mentioned the, the sun, the form of the good. It's this ultimate of all forms that gives all forms their meaning. And those forms show themselves in material things. But that form, too, doesn't give a meaning. It enlightens us as to what those things are, what their nature is. And I believe, like, when I read that, I was thinking, I think if Socrates had heard John or Paul speak about the wisdom of God or the logos of God, 
and who he was and how he became incarnate and how he defeated the powers of sin, death, and evil by his resurrection, he would have believed because this would have connected all things for him, the, the, the universal and the human and the divine. It's, it's very conceivable that he would have, and, and, and you get, you get er, al, analogies or parallels to that because, for example, well, you mentioned just before we started talking, St. Augustine was, a, was a, an unbeliever, and then he encounters Cicero's Hortensius, which is a work of philosophy that, as far as we can tell, was a meditation on Platonic and Aristotelian and then, and then Stoic thought, pointing, meditating on the Logos. Yeah. Apparently, he was, he was prepared so that when the gospel came clearly to him, he did respond to it, and I and you're talking about Gregory Thaumaturgus, and you're talking about um, you're talking about about Origen, and you're talking about um, other saints. Many of the of the fathers of the church were people who were as, as, as supremely educated in their era. For example, John Chrysostom was educated by Libanius, the, the greatest rhetorician of his age. And, and when, and when, well, he grew up a Christian, so it, it's not the exact, exact same parallel, but he's fourth, fifth century. But as the earlier you go, the more you see these people immersed in Greek or classical philosophy, and then they hear the gospel and they say, that's what it is. That's what I'm looking for. And I think about it, it happens to me all the time. I'm not really a trained philosopher, but I have a disposition toward philosophy. And so I'm always asking these questions about, well, nature and, and essences and stuff like that. So I, so I think about it, and, and then I ask myself, well, what would happen if I pulled Jesus out? Now, my own personal life would unravel. I get that. But that's not a philosophical reason to stop to, to believe something. But what would happen to thought itself if you pulled Jesus out? And, and, and one of the obvious things that, that seems to me is that thought itself would split in at least two. It would fracture into at least two directions, which is you would, there is nothing other than our Lord Jesus who holds together in his own being the physical world and the spiritual world. So, you know, you've got, you've got the dualism of the, of the, of the, of the Taoists or the, or the Buddhists maybe, and you've got the materialism of the post-Cartesian West. Well, that's because the, the, the knot of the tapestry, as it were, the, 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 the key of the cosmic symphony, the logos, is removed. Things fall apart when that happens. The tapestry loses its, 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 its design. And what we're looking at now is a kingdom of shreds and patches, to quote Lear. And, and that, that kingdom of shreds and patches is looking, if I can switch my metaphor again, is looking for that thing that's going to weave it back together again. And the Christian who, who is willing to let Christ be Logos within him and then through him, especially in education, I, he's the only hope in my view for a re restoration of Christian education, if not education generally. Yeah, and I, I feel that's the case, that, that integration that we mentioned, that we, we modeled from the ancient world and from the church fathers, that's not really taught even in Christian schools today. Christian no, schools not. are just, they're, they're just toned down, good boy, good girl versions of public school systems. 
Well, let me illustrate that too from my own experience. The very first year I was a teacher, I was about 30 years old, 29, 30 years old in a classical school, Christian school. And um, it was the, the first year of the school's existence. I was teaching a uh, sixth and ninth grade class and I was teaching history. And then that same group of kids, it was a dozen kids, then I would teach them literature in the afternoon. Well, one day, well, it was the opposite, literature and then history. One day we're sitting in, it doesn't matter. One day we're sitting in literature class. And so I'm introducing Shakespeare to my class. I'm talking about Elizabethan England and issues and whatever. One of the girls raises her hand, she says, and I said, what? She says, Mr. Kern, you can't do that. And I said, what? Can't do what? She said, this is literature class. And I said, yeah. She said, you can't teach history in literature class. Now, I'll grant you, ninth grade girl might have just been smarting off. I don't know. <laughs> But everything about the way she did it indicated she was very genuine. And even, even if it doesn't, even if not, it still illustrates if it doesn't give an example of the point, which is that here was a child who grew up in a school studying literature and history for eight years. And now she comes into this literature class having come to the conclusion that literature and history are not connected, right? They're not connected. And I, and I have thought ever since then, who told her that? And I have come to the conclusion that nobody ever told her that. It was the form, the structure of the way she was taught. When, when she had history, she pulled out a history book. When she had list, literature, she pulled out a literature textbook. Worse, right? Textbook. And those, those two things became for her not something in the world she lived in. They came for her two things that exist in textbooks at school. And so consequently, they didn't have anything to do with each other and they didn't have anything to do with her. And so as a result, her mind was fragmented by the way she was taught in a Christian school. Yeah. That's mental illness. Yeah, I mean, and it's trained too, unfortunately. It's, it's, that's the result of the system, which is, if, if I may go so far to say, I don't think there really are Christian schools apart from maybe the classical schools um, that, you, you, um, that you've worked so well in and that you've helped develop across so many different places in the United States, because it takes what we just described and that's how people are educated. It's mm -hmm. not by just taking the regular curriculum and you know, putting God here in a few words and praying before in the end of class. Um, and that also... But we're trying. We're trying yeah. to get there. Yeah. But I think from what I'm seeing and reading and hearing, I, I think you guys are getting there. You know, it's ultimately different in quality than what we see with regular private schools. And I, I want to hit on, you know, that that's related to how we perceive knowledge. The church fathers saw it as a reflection of the logos because we have the mm -hmm. seminal logos in our mind and we can mm -hmm. understand how he's put seeds of that logos across nature. We also have a seed. So by contemplating nature, we grow and we have a better understanding. So the universe, um, the logos and ourselves, it's all interconnected and integrated. Um, whereas in modern education, it's all about, like I said at the beginning, um, getting a good job, making a lot of money and yeah. living a good life. So at the end, knowledge itself is worthless apart from what it can do for you. Yeah. Um, that's why I wow. think that mentality continues in private schools 
And that's why a girl like that could differentiate between literature and history in her mind. And then it does not allow them to have a deeper relationship with Christ and with the world and with each other. And it's like, I think with Augustine, like you mentioned, um, Hortensius, which I, I regret to tell all my listeners that that book is lost. Yeah. It had, and I, I, I remember reading the confessions. I've never gotten more than 25% in because that I have to be prepared in a different way to read that book. It's not a regular book. I mean, it's not to say it's hard. It just, it's like the Republic. It transforms how you look at the world and specifically between you and God, every single page that you turn. But that book changed his outlook because it was, it, number one, it was, it's education. The Hortensius. The book, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Hortensius. It changed Augustine's perception. At first, he wasn't open to any of this. But then he even says, um, let me quote from the book. It's in, in book three. He says, that book of his contains an exhortation of study philosophy. The book changed my feelings. It altered my prayers, Lord, to be toward you yourself, meaning not for anything else. I don't pray for God to do this and give me this, but to be focused on him. And it gave me different values and priorities. Suddenly, every vein of hope became empty to me. And I longed for the immortality of wisdom with an incredible ardor in my heart. I began to rise up to return to you. I was impressed not by the book's refining effect on my style and literary expression, but by the contents. And that's from book three of the confessions. And I think if we had the mentality that knowledge is real, that it's not simply to be used for me, what I call like the self-centered view of knowledge, yeah. and that the universe was there before you or I came here, and it's going to be there long after you and I are gone, and that that reality demands understanding of the thing itself, I think just like it led Augustine, changed the way that he thought about things. I think how it led St. Gregory the Wonder Worker to deepen his relationship with Christ just by being educated in the, the, what we call the arts and the sciences. I think if we take that integrated approach, then education will become a way for people, if they don't believe, to be ready to believe when that day comes yeah. and to be ready to dialogue with it in an honest way. Like I feel a lot of people that say they doubt whether this could be true or disbelieve they're not un. what's the word. They're not unable to believe. I think they are to many degree because of their education, but they're also unwilling to believe because knowledge in the end for them has no value. It's just something to use. And since, you know, we can't use God can't use, we can't use um, uh, the spirituality to get something that we necessarily want, just like we can use mathematics to, to get a, a job in engineering or finance and make a lot of money. Yeah. That has hurt the soul of the West. It's hurt everyone's souls. And it's not just an approach to God, but it's an approach to community, approach to self. Um, we're living without meaning. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I may bring in a modern thinker, uh, Jordan Peterson, um, and, and I will say... Um, for my listeners, I'm not endorsing. Um, I'm definitely going to warn that this is not an orthodox Christian thinker, um, that you can take everything he says word for word. But I feel that what Jordan Peterson does compared to other thinkers, he integrates things once again and frames the right questions so that it opens up the heart of people to be open to belief, to belief in, in God and, and Christ. And, 
and that that Christian religious life, um, that way of being, if I may so add it. And I know, I certainly know a lot of people. They're in the church and they're in the Orthodox church, both young men and young women, not just young men, because a lot of people say he's, he's focused for young men, but even young women who have found their way back into the church and have a stronger relationship with Christ because of how he's framed things and how he's shown that knowledge does have meaning. It, it says something about things that are out of our control that we can never use and that demand an explanation, this reality, like I said, that was there before us and that'll be there after us. And that's what the ancient writers do long before him. And that's what the church fathers do in many ways. Um, a lot of people call him intellectual, but I've always been upset with that um, analogy because they, they differentiate between intellectual and spiritual. Right. And for them, there was no difference. Um, their intellectual life led to a deeper prayer life. Their deeper prayer life led to a deeper uh, meaning with, with the deeper engagement with the fields of knowledge. Um, so it's, it's totally integrated. Whereas we say, oh, it's either academic or it's either spiritual. No doubt it can be, <laughs> but in our modern fragmented ways. But it's, that's what I hope people can see with the, the church father's approach to knowledge. And I think we draw out a lot of lessons. I think the first one is that we should be slow to speak mm. when we hear something. I mean, I can't tell you how many times growing up with Western Christians, um, you know, those who grow up in America, they're so ready to answer any question that people raise. You know, you see someone in high school, you know, they start developing mental illness, um, these different disorders, and right away they answer, oh, this must be schizophrenia because that's the stereotypical one, or oh, it's demon possession, and uh, we're going we're gonna to send you to the pastor to cast out the demon. Like, they didn't even stop for a second to consider what this reality is, um, or with the sciences, or with... with um, other fields of knowledge. I find more with like like psychiatry and, and the sciences. Oh, it's all answerable right away. It's like it's worthless to them. And I feel that too. That's why a lot of Western Christians just lose faith. There's no room for meaning. Knowledge is just, we use it. We use it to get what we want. It has no bearing upon reality itself and meaning. Then God, oh, this is the one we should be with so we can have the good place after we die. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like, yeah. So that's one lesson I think we can draw out from the church father's way of um, learning and approaching knowledge that we, we behold the mystery. We contemplate on it. And, and Gregory says this too in his oration. It's like, he's like, I'm, I'm so afraid to use words. <laughs> because I don't feel it will ever be adequate, but at the same time, I can't be silent. Right. Um, are there other lessons that you see we can draw out from this too? Applications? Well, sure. I think um, as you've been talking, my mind's been reflecting on, on knowledge in the Bible, particularly. And the first use of the word by, of knowledge in the Bible is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I find fascinating. But the second use, and by the way, it's right the next chapter and therefore intended by the author to be put up against the other one. And you're supposed to think about them. Mm -hmm. You have the knowledge of good and evil. And then you have Adam knew Eve, his wife. And, and, and this, is, this is two kinds of knowledge. And the second one is the more 
authentic, holistic kind of knowledge. And it's an analogy of what knowledge is meant to be. It's meant to be fruitful. It's meant to be relational. It's meant to be covenantal. It's, it's meant to be taking place in appropriate forms and relationships. All knowledge is. It's not just, and it's so hard for us moderns to understand this. There is this tiny little thing that you can, if you insist on it, call knowledge that is recollection of information. You know, I memorized the passage or I know my money in the bank account. That is a very valuable but feeble form of knowledge. It's the kind that can give you knowledge. I'm sorry, power to some limited extent, but you'll have to compete with other people for that kind of power. It's not a knowledge that gives you a relationship, although it does make a relationship potentially more you know, deeper. But a knowledge of, a true knowledge is a relationship in which essences know each other. And, and you use the word mystery. I think all knowledge, genuinely speaking, all knowledge is, is, is in the unmystical. That, you know, I'll sometimes hear someone say, I didn't fully understand that until, and I'm thinking, how did you get it then? I've never fully understood anything in my life. I've never fully understood the way a hair grows on a head, right? There's nothing, there's nothing that we can fully understand. After all, the, the fathers told us that there's four levels of interpretation of the Bible, right? So, so if, there's, if there's a literal and there's the allegorical and there's the moral and there's the anagogical, and then everything, you look at the stars, you fully, you, you know, in other words, we don't fully get it, but we can still, we can still know it deeply. And we can still know it deeply in two senses that two, two vital ways. We, we perceive the logos of that thing, that thing's logos, right? This, the, the, the seminal logos is, is uh, in it and it is what it is meant to be. And we delight in it. Okay. So we know it. And then, or we perceive it. And then along with that perception, or maybe the same thing as that perception is our relationship with it. So if we don't relate to something according to what it is with respect and propriety, then we don't know it, no matter how much control we have over it, no matter how much um, we can recite about it, we don't know it. Yeah. So, so I, I think that's important for us as Christians, if we want to if we, if we pray all the time, thy kingdom come, then we have to have a kingdom sense of knowledge or we become a barrier to the coming of the kingdom. Yeah. How do we, yeah, absolutely. The, the integration. Um, and I think for our listeners too, some of them may be saddened. Like this is not offered by the public school education system and it definitely never will. I'm telling you people right now because the system is there to develop skills that are by method. And we said that's limiting. But there are things that we can do at home. I mean, I, I, I often tell people, just a parent asking their child what they learned at school, just having that conversation and connecting it to the grand scheme of things, that there alone can be more valuable than everything they learn. Because mm -hmm. if they can't put the pieces together, even though they've learned so much, it's like a puzzle. If you have... If you have all 1,000 pieces of the puzzle, and you have them, but you don't know how to put them together, mm. even though you got them, and the puzzle's like the bits of knowledge that we get from every single class. If we can never put them together, what's the point? I love that. I love that. And, and I would say, if I may, along that line, if you want to know what, what can you do at home 
to make the most of what's happened at school in any context. Read the book of Proverbs, the first, let's say, 10 chapters, and the first five verses or so of each chapter. Just write the word, the, just underline or write down the verbs. It's things like, listen, pay attention, behold, right? And, and, and there's skills there, basically. There's, there's faculties or habits that it's saying, develop this, do this, do this. I would say that, that those are the things you need to teach your child to do, and you can do it in the time you have. And so here's, here's what I mean. There's an ancient saying that I think was the church fathers, you become what you behold. Okay, to behold is to pay attention to something, to look closely at it. The most important thing that a human being does to determine what he's going to become is pay attention to something. You do become like the things that you pay attention to. And so the most important thing a parent can teach a child, in my opinion, is how to pay attention. And, and any technologies and tools and so on that are working against your child's attentiveness are destroying his soul and weakening as well. So do everything you can to cultivate his attentiveness. The second thing, and it helps to do this, is cultivate his memory. You remember better what you pay attention to, but sometimes memory just takes drill and practice. So, so cultivate your child's memory. The third thing I would say is cultivate your child's ability which is very easy actually, to compare things. And, and um, this happens all the time in Proverbs, but if you can get them, you know, if they talk about one class, history and literature, let's go back to that. And, and um, you say to them, so tell me about this character in, in the history class, and then tell me about this character in literature class, and then just compare them. How are they alike? Just that simple question. Now you can ask deeper questions as they come to you, but just teach them how to habitually, consciously compare things. And then fourth, and this is to what you're talking, you've mentioned quite a few times, and I love it, the idea of integration. The fourth thing is teach them how to integrate. Teach them how to bring harmony to their minds and to the things they're thinking about. And if you can take literally five minutes, I'm going to say three times a week even. If you could take five minutes, three times a week, to, to ask them questions about how things fit together, whether it be in a book or in a bunch of classes or in various, whatever, it doesn't matter. Just Give them practice integrating things, seeing how things fit together. And that comes back again to the comparison question. How is physics like chemistry? How is physics like literature? Well, they are alike in some ways, but they're also different. Their likeness shows how they relate to each other. Their differences show how, how, they're, how, they're, how you have to do different things to do them. But if they can learn how things are alike and different, then they can learn how things are related to each other. And if they learn how things are related to each other, they can learn how to bring integration and harmony to their own minds. And I've said, I believe this, I believe this, that, that mental illness is often characterized by discord within the mind. And if we can help our children have resolved discords in their minds through questions that integrate things, we can help them. I'm not saying that that's some kind of instantaneous cure to, for mental illness. I don't mean that, but it can prevent it, and it can and it can it cultivates mental health, just as walking cultivates physical health. So the act of integrating two things cultivates mental health. Yeah, and if I may touch upon that, um, it goes to anthropology. What you're saying, um, mm. 
almost the ritual structure of um, what you're saying, the attention, the memory, the comparison, and the harmony. Um, ritual is very well known, and this is not debatable. This is in all aspects of anthropology as an anxiolytic, meaning it cuts down anxiety. It breaks it down. It resets the mind, wow. reorients it. Um, and I think if we focus on that integration, like you said, at least, it will alleviate some aspects of anxiety if people have it. Now, of course, we're not saying, you know, if, you're, if you have anxiety disorder, then get rid of the pills. <laughs> but we're saying that it definitely has, it has a positive effect on our being as, as you know, embodied souls. Um, so again, um, for my audience, I'm repeating what he said. He, you know, cultivate the attention, cultivate the memory, have them compare different things, whether it's the fields of knowledge themselves, or I'm going to add even um, comparing it to what we understand about God and the world and, and our own uh, Christian dogmatic tradition. And that leads to harmony. And if I may close off with a passage from St. Justin Martyr, who was probably the first church father who talked about the seminal logos, the seed logos. He says, the truths which men in all lands have rightly spoke belong to us Christians. For we worship and love after God the Father, the logos who is from the unbegotten and ineffable God, since he even became man for us, so that by sharing our suffering, he, may, he might also heal us. Indeed, all writers, and this can be applied to all fields of knowledge that we have today, by means of the ingrafted seed of the word, which was implanted in them, had a glimpse of the truth. For the seed of something and its imitation, given in proportion to one's capacity, is one thing. But the thing itself, which is shared and imitated according to his grace, is quite another. And that's where we really need to think about knowledge, um, all of us. Because when it integrates in our spiritual lives, it creates, it integrates our minds, which a lot of people struggle to bring into that spiritual life, but it integrates it. It integrates the emotions, the true wonder. And we learn, like St. Gregory said, we learn to wonder rationally at the sacred economy of all things. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. Um, this, was, this was very beneficial for me, and I'm sure it's going to be very beneficial for my listeners. Uh, and I'm sure um, we're going to be open to more episodes depending on the feedback we get on this. All right. Thank you. I hope somebody out there can forgive me. Thank <laughs> you so much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.